battlefield discipline. What's your assessment of their battlefield discipline? How much space they leave between their troops when they're patrolling? Do they pursue sort of an aggressive fighting patrol when they're in defensive positions or they just sit on their asses doing nothing, sleeping sentries? And then the second part to that is, um, you may have talked about it, but I haven't heard about it, is the uh, prevalence and usage of snipers by both se- both sides. Is there a lot of it going on? Thanks. <clears throat> um, I'll answer the second part first. So the sniper thing, yeah, it's going on nonstop. Um, some of the some of the the Russians aren't that good at it. Obviously, some of them are going to be. Um, I have yet to deal with them, but apparently the DNR are those guys, the separatists, have some pretty pretty good snipers. Uh, from what the Ukrainians say, um, <clears throat> I don't know if we've fought any of them or not yet. Um, maybe we have, maybe we haven't. Um, we haven't gotten hit by any of the snipers, luckily. Um, our sniper almost got killed by a sniper um, early on in the war. Uh, he got really lucky. Um, <clears throat> and then as far as, like, the battlefield discipline, it's pretty garbage. Um, you know, they leave their trenches and their fighting positions a freaking mess. They're trashed on. There's, you know, booze bottles, uh, like alcohol bottles in their positions. Um their their uh, patrols are pretty uh, pretty pretty shitty too, as far as like spacing. I mean, they don't really space out too much. They do after they get hit with something. Uh, a little bit too late there on that on their part, but it's not the greatest. It's not the worst. It's probably somewhere in between. Like on a scale of one to ten, they're probably like a four for battlefield discipline. Um, our snipers gotten quite a few kills because people stand up and talk on their freaking phones outside their trenches so he just hits the russian guy that's talking on his phone or they're smoking a cigarette at night um so i mean it it's not the greatest obviously right thanks that's yeah nothing else like so thank you i'll drop that Jules, hey uh, thanks for uh, permitting me another question uh so i guess i'm you know you seem like the guy to talk to about uh, trenches uh I'm, i've been really curious about these trenches um in terms of their design, it seems like they're much shallower than like the World War One style trenches. So I don't know. Um, maybe, maybe I'm incorrect about that. If, if you could maybe just talk a little bit about trench design, is trench digging something that a regular soldier is doing as a normal activity? Um, and are, are we seeing the trenches get more sophisticated as time goes on? Or is it uh, just kind of uh, the trench lines that exist are just going to kind of continue existing as they are? Thank you. Yeah, the trench lines are pretty shallow, um, and I, I I don't think they were ever that great at the start of the um, recent invasion. Um, I don't know why they don't. I, I'd have, I've never held a shovel in my hand in this war yet. I've yet to dig a trench. Um, like I said, I try to avoid trenches, especially digging them, because that means there's nothing else in front of you at the current point. Um, but uh, <clears throat> I'm not sure why they're shallow. I'll ask one of the Ukrainian commanders. That might just be their, their SOP. Um, the deeper trenches would probably be a better idea, but it might just come down to time constraints, uh, artillery fires while you're digging. Uh, there are units that dig trenches while there's artillery fire. Um, cause I mean, that's how you get trenches further out from your current trench. Um, but I'm not sure why they don't do the like world war one style. I don't know if it's just not needed or any of that, but they do fortify the trenches. It has gotten better. Uh, they obviously use supports now and um, other things like overhead cover in areas. So, like, you can actually avoid um, when the Russians are trying to hit precision stuff. <clears throat> Is it always effective? Probably depends when it comes to the fortification of your overhead cover. 
But yeah, I'm not sure. I'll ask one of the commanders and see if he can give me an answer. It might just be because they don't want to dig eight foot down. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Ryan, while you're on that subject of trenches, one last question here to add to it. Um, you you guys have said your unit is is digging them by hand, and and you haven't necessarily perhaps expanded from from a trench that you've dug to a trench in front of it. Um, have you seen any of the, uh, the the trench diggers by the Ukrainians uh, if they were doing that uh, with their combat engineers or, or under artillery fire, or or even without that? Oh yeah, those uh, <clears throat> like the Kraken unit, which is uh, like in the northeast right now. Uh, they'll roll up to a frontline position and start digging while under fire. Um, they have a shit ton of balls, and I'm pretty sure they're big. Um, but yeah, I mean the Ukrainians will dig trenches under fire. That's what you got to do to uh, move your frontline forward, even if it's you know 20 meters. Um, uh, we haven't dug trenches because that's not what we do. We will go sit in the trench if we get told to, um, but we typically aren't the like my. We're a fairly small unit. There's like less than 20 of us and more than five of us um and we more we mainly do other stuff than sit in trenches but we do do it once in a while um so but yeah the ukrainians do dig them under fire uh it's just if that has to be done that has to be done <clears throat> i'm not a expertise on trenches i don't know if there's a safer way to do it or a better way to do it um there probably is it just depends on time constraints i'm going to assume and the equipment they use a lot of times the shovels they use, they don't have like the Western like style e-tools. They have like a wooden handle on a short, like a little short stubby uh, shovel. So like old old school World War Two, World War One trench shovels, what they usually use. Thanks, Ryan. And I'm assuming you, you brought your e-tool with you or, or is that do you find, not only find it useful, but uh, would you find it useful for, for other guys to have or no, that the need's been met? I actually did not bring an A tool with me. So <clears throat> my gear. So at the start of the war, I didn't wear any body armor. I didn't wear Kevlar. Uh, I wear it now predominantly because the unit commander said he had to, and I just got put down, so I wear it now. Um, <clears throat> the only thing I carry on me for a tool is typically a knife and then like a multi-tool. So um, I mean, obviously, and then gloves and like eye protection. But um, as far as like all the other stuff, I usually don't. I don't. I don't really. I don't carry a lot of gear. Um, we have guys in our unit that do pack heavy. They wear like uh, the combat belts, uh, magazines on their hips instead. But um, I pretty much run around with an RPG. Uh, so my typical combat load is the Airtronics RPG seven, uh, six to twelve rockets, depending what what we're doing for the day, and then some C four electric detonators, and then a pistol, um, and then I'll put a rifle in like my backpack. Um, but that's about all I carry. So, and just out of sheer curiosity, how, when, how are you carrying twelve? Are you splitting it up between a, a few guys to carry those those rounds, or are you able to fit those together? How, how are you fitting those together uh, while, while you're moving pretty quick? Uh, so typically, I'll carry six on myself. Uh, without the boosters connected, I'll leave two on the boosters if if I don't have one in the tube. Uh, I got a little backpack that was custom made here that can carry the RP. It's basically like an extended version of the old RPG carriers that you saw in like Iraq, Afghanistan that would hold three. Mine can hold six and then I can put some other stuff in there too. <clears throat> and then we just divvy out the RPGs to the other people on the teams usually. Um, it's, it's heavy, but it's manageable. It's a lot lighter than you'd think. It's, it's not overly heavy unless you carry the, uh, like the tandem warheads, which I usually don't carry. Um, Cause if I'm shooting an RPG, a tandem RPG at a tank, it's a little too close for comfort already, so 
you're you're giving me some uh, crazy Mad Max vibes. Right? You're you're running around stuff to the gills with uh, <laughs> with RPG rounds. That's 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 quite uh, that's quite uh, epic. Yeah, my unit. <clears throat> it's not politically correct, but my unit calls me the White Haji because I basically just run around with an RPG everywhere. <laughs> I've got keeping my mute on laugh. Uh, August to to you. Yeah, thanks, Ryan. Mad respect. I hope you don't ever get tired of having people say that to you. But I was wondering um, if you have had any Russians that have surrendered to you. You had mentioned the POWs. What's the process when you have a POW uh, or if somebody surrenders, you know, sort of walk through what the steps are, what you do and where they go next. And if you've been able to communicate with them and get some understanding of how what they feel about the war and what's going on. And sort of a a part two to that is um, if you think having like some kind of translation app would help when um, the war first started, I had read some articles about some of the squads in the International Legion left just because they couldn't communicate. They were ready to fight. They were excited to fight, but they got frustrated with the language barrier. And they had a soldier that actually came on the Walter report and um, they weren't in the Ukraine, but they were supplying some things for the soldiers. And they were thinking about creating some kind of, um, you know, translation app for the kits. Do you think that would be valuable or would it just be an extra piece of equipment or it's just too cumbersome? But if you could answer those two things, I would really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Um, I don't think it would really be needed. Um, we carry Google Translate on our phone, so like we can do that. So we don't really need like a translation kit. Uh, we also have Ukrainian-speaking Americans with us and Ukrainian-Canadians and a few other guys that were ex-Western forces, luckily. Um, A lot of the units now are getting commanders that can speak at least um, conversational English. So that helps out a lot. At the start, it was pretty bad. It still is pretty bad in some aspects. International Legion, again, I'm not very keen on them. Um, And luckily, I'm not under them fully outside, other than pay, which they don't pay me anyway, because they can't figure out their own pay system. Um, But... But otherwise, I don't think we need the translation apps. Um, as far as the POW goes, uh, if they surrender, usually the only time they get a chance to surrender is if we can catch them without a weapon in their hand. Um, otherwise, they don't have a chance to surrender. Um, <clears throat> obviously, we're not going to shoot anyone that's put their hands up. But typically, the only time that that happens is if we can catch them when they're on guard duty with not a weapon near them, which has happened. Um, in some instances, we've caught them like that, and they went for the guns, so they got shot. But uh, once we capture them, then they just get handed over to the Ukrainians. We don't catch them. We don't do anything with them. Um, that's all on the Ukrainians. Uh, we have Ukrainian officers with us on the missions and Ukrainian soldiers with us on the missions. So basically, they'll, they'll grab them, put duct tape on their face, or put a rag over the face and duct tape it. Uh, just over their eyes, not their whole face. So they can still breathe. But um, basically, duct tape their eyes, duct tape their hands, bring them to the back. The, the Usually, the Ukrainian officer on the front line will question them for a little bit, and then they call up to the intelligence services or whatever army service that deals with the POWs, and they'll come get them. Um, you know, we'll give them water. So usually, they ask for water and a cigarette. 
So I'm going to just give them that and set them down and tell them to chill. Or if they're injured, provide medical aid. Uh, we got a soft guy that, you know, patches them up if they need a soft medic, ex-soft medic. So do you get any sense of what they feel about the war? You know? Um, um, most of the time, like on the front line, they don't get asked. That's mainly, you know, what unit are you from? What are you guys doing? What equipment do you have? You know, we just try to figure out what the, the, the main things that we want to know right away are. I'm assuming further in the rear, the Ukrainians then ask them, you know, what was your morale? Uh, you know, why weren't you carrying your weapon on you when they found you or, you know, just stuff like that. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, on the front line, it's just basically where's your unit at? How many guys are still out in the field? What equipment do you have? Just the basics. So like we can either go kill them or figure out where they're at and then kill them later or find them later. Do you find they're mainly cooperative and happy? You know, I wouldn't say happy to be caught. I mean, I would assume the conditions probably under um, being a POW might even be better than the conditions they have with their own squad. Um, at the start of the war, they pretty much thought we were going to kill them right away, which is whatever. Um, but I mean, usually they're pretty, they're not like overly talkative or anything. Um, I, I wouldn't say they're happy. They're scared, obviously, because I don't know what's going to happen to them. Um, you know, I probably would be in that situation too, if I was them. Um, but no, usually they're, they're cooperative. I mean, they're not, they don't try to fight you. They don't do, they don't spit on you. They don't do any of that. So, I mean, they basically just get, they ask for a cigarette water or some food. You give it to them, they sit there and they just stay quiet unless they're asked a question usually. All right. Thanks so much. Great. Thank you, August, for the question. Thank you, Ryan. Uh, I think it was Tomash. He was trying to speak. Uh, Tomash, can you get connected this time? Can you hear us? Can you unmute your microphone? Yeah, thank you. Sorry about earlier. Uh, Ryan, you spoke before about the Belarusian and Georgian uh, internationals uh, and a little bit about the Westerners. Can you speak a little bit about uh, any of the internationals coming from Eastern Europe, uh, Poland, the Baltic State, uh, just the quality and quantity of uh, people coming from uh, that area? Thank you. Yeah, I can speak a little bit. Um, <clears throat> let's see. I'm trying to think what all countries I've met. So, and make sure my geography is here on the uh, Baltic states. You know, being Americans, our geography is not the best all the time. <laughs> but uh, um, <clears throat> Lithuanians pretty squared away. Actually, I know a few of them here uh, that were in Moshun with us at the get-go. Uh, not with us, but they were at the next trench line over uh, in the other sector front line. <clears throat> Lithuanians tend to be pretty squared away. Um, Polish, I haven't served with any Poles yet, so I don't know about them. They are in country. Um, I think a lot of those guys actually hang out with the Georgian Legion um, <clears throat> or the Belarusian Legion. I haven't seen too many with English-speaking people. Um, uh, Norwegians are good. The Finns are actually pretty decent. Um, <clears throat> and then, let's see, what other countries have I seen out here? Uh, I've met a, a few Serbians, actually, which were interesting. Uh, they were good. Um, <clears throat> there's actually quite a few of the Serbians that I don't know um, where they operate at. I don't know if they operate in conjun conjunction with the Georgian Legion or who they're actually under as far as overall picture. They might be just like the Georgian Legion with their own separate one, but the Serbian guys are pretty good. Um, everyone always wants to know, are they Islamists? It's like, no, they don't really care about um, Sharia law or any of that stuff. It's just they're fighting because they predominantly don't like Russia for the most part, it seems. Um, 
<clears throat> the Chechens are about the same way. They're not Islamists either. I don't know why. For some reason, everyone who's like, oh, you're Serbian, you're an Islamist over here. Uh, they're not. The Chechens aren't either, for the most part. A few of them are, but they're not trying to do Sharia law for the war or anything like that. Uh, the Chechen guys are really good fighters. Um, haven't met anyone from Bosnia yet. Haven't met anyone from... Haven't met anyone from, like, Iceland or any of these other countries. The Germans are okay fighters. I'm, I'm going outside the Baltics now, but the Germans are good fighters. Uh, the French guys, funny enough, are pretty good anti-aircraft guys. Um, the British are probably the anti-armor guys. Uh, they actually know what a tank is versus another tank, whereas the Americans are like, that's a tank, that's a tank. Um, so, <laughs> haven't. oh, I met one Irishman. He was decent. No Scottish that I've met. I think, I'm trying to think of what other countries. Oh, Estonia. There's been a few Estonians over here. I don't know what happened to them. They were early on in the war. And I, I don't know if they, they ended up doing medic stuff. They didn't want to do frontline fighting. So I don't know if they got put in medic or what they got put in. But I mean, overall, the Legion's been good. Um, the fighting, the fighters at the start were, it was about a 50-50 if the person next to you knew what they were doing, depending on what unit you were in. Um, after, you know, like I'd say, starting April, all the bad apples or the inexperienced uh, pretty much are gone now. Um, and the International Legion, as much as I hate on them, are actually only recruiting predominantly military veterans now. So uh, we're getting better quality. But overall, I mean, the recruits have been good. Everyone, all the volunteers have been decent. So uh, there's been a few bad apples here and there, but it seems each country has their own little specific niche that they're good at doing within the armed forces. So, Brian, there's more than 400 Germans uh, currently fighting, according to our registry. Um, most of them, in some shape or form, form a KSK. Sorry, they're former what? KSK. That's the um, high, high alert readiness troop who are also in Afghanistan. Did you meet uh, German Afghanistan veterans? So I've met a few Germans, but I I think a lot of them were just regular army or whatever your regular armed forces are, like regular infantry type guys. Um, there was one guy here that was like a Boonswasser or whatever that, uh, however you pronounce that. Sorry, I butchered it. Um, but I haven't met that many Germans. I don't know where they're all hanging at. They must be in, in one of the other... I don't know. I don't know where all the Germans are, actually. If, you, if you're going northeast, if you're going northeast, you're supposed to find them. Perfect. I'll let you know how they fight. <laughs> that, that'll be good to know. Thank you. I'd much like to hear that. Thank you, guys. That's all I got. That's really good. I mean, if And Brian, if they can't fight, they're not worth it. <laughs> I'll just take a quick moment here for anyone tuning in. Uh, we have Ryan O'Leary here in the space answering questions. Uh, he's in Ukraine. He's on the ground. He's been fighting on the front lines uh, as a, as a uh, conscript or as a as a um, soldier in the Ukrainian army, uh, he's been here answering our questions gracious, graciously. So, if we could please share and retweet uh, the Walter Report space, and please tag Ryan, uh, let people know we're we're asking questions of him. Uh, this space drives awareness, uh, ultimately tries to help and support people like Ryan uh, and other Ukrainians on the front front lines fighting to provide uh, support. Uh, non-lethal support with uh, Maria Aid, with the assistance of Maria Aid. So please share and retweet. Uh, and with that, sorry, back to you, Axel. I just wanted to highlight what Ryan had said earlier, that we really want to make sure that Maria Aid can actually provide um, more uh, capacity for binoculars, the ones uh, 
Brian had highlighted 10x and above. We'd like to make sure that there's more camel, more helmets, more plate carriers and the likes, and that uh, we can provide definitely for those pieces of kits uh, which other people can't find, laser range finders, and, um, well, seemingly also Canadian MRE. No, Axel, I think he gave you a compliment. He said the German MREs were uh, like three days worth of food, so they were the better ones. Was, oh, was the, the tank? Oh, gosh. No, there's three days worth of food. They're good because you can carry it pretty easy. But I tell you what, they have like a bread in a can that has like a seal on it and is atrocious. Yeah, forget that one. I know. I mean, we uh, in the good old days when I was young, we had the so-called tank plates, you know. It's a kind of a biscuit you cannot, I mean, if you eat it, you, you are at risk of getting your molars hard. But okay, there it you would, go. It would be better, too, if they had heater packets in it. Like, they have, like, a little sausage roll. Like, they look like meatball meals in it, but it's so terrible cold. Sorry, mate. All right, with that, we will go to Nick, then Joseph, then CJ. Nick, how's Magalu? <laughs> uh, hot again today. Ryan, um, this is maybe very personal. You might not want to answer it, but do you have a plan if you get captured or to not get captured? You know, I never thought, I mean, I've thought about it, but, and I'm sure everyone always says this, I'm not going to get captured, but um, I probably won't allow that to happen. Um, and I, I mean, I'm fine with getting killed, so I think I'd rather die than get captured at this point. So I don't want to make a political issue for my country, and then Ukraine has to deal with it too. Um, it's just much easier to either, yeah, just probably just die at that point. If I'm in the situation, I mean, unless I get like knocked out or something, or you know, something like that, that's probably about the only way I get captured. So, okay, thank you. I, I, I. Uh, you know, I, I thought this might be a trouble. You know, I apologize if it was an inappropriate question, but it would be on my mind. No, you're fine. And like, like I said, it sounds cliche saying that, but like, you know, I've spent seven years in war zones. I'm like, if it if it comes to that, it comes to that. So <clears throat> it's better that way than getting captured and then dealing with the DNR, LNR, and all the political fallout in the West. So solid, Joseph. Ooh, to a to a much more mundane question. Uh, so earlier you talked a little bit about uh, body armor. So I was just wondering if you had any observation on Ukrainian armed forces. And then maybe one quick extra question I could slip in: Is bug spray an issue? Do you guys have enough? Uh, I remember uh, there was a Ukrainian soldier on, uh, here named Konstantin who mentioned that he wanted he really wanted some bug spray sometimes. So I was just curious about that. Thanks. Yeah, you can buy the stuff locally here. Luckily, um, <clears throat> I would probably say people on the front line would like it regardless. Uh, Mosquitoes here are freaking brutal. Um, like, it's bad. But, I mean, well, depending on what area you're in, obviously. But um, we found out real quick, don't ever take breaks near any standing water. And if you're laying in the woods or anything, don't move. Because the minute you move, they just swarm. Um, but there is local supplies of bug spray. That's not an issue currently. So that's good. Uh, you might be able to talk to Mira Aid and say... Or maybe Mira A can look at doing donations for bug spray, though. Um, or even, like, bug netting. Uh, that way you don't have to worry about spray all the time. Uh, they do make... You can find the camo netting for, like, the the mesh netting for bugs. Like, bug netting here, so... Oh, yeah, sorry. All right, my other question challenge. was about body armor. Joseph, uh, Joseph. Oh, sorry. The, Go ahead. No, Joseph. The challenge is accepted. Oh, yeah. Bug netting, bug spray. What else, Ryan? 
Uh, that'd be the main thing, other than the weapons I told you about. But I mean, you guys can't get us weapons. Uh, plate carriers and Kevlar's too. Like the TDF typically are lacking those. Um, not all the time, but I mean, they get them. I think at the front line, hopefully. But <clears throat> there's always there's always room for more. Excellent, Joseph. If you have a follow up, please. Oh no, that's all. Sorry, Axel. Go ahead. I would hand it to CJ. I'm hunting for buck netting now. Yeah, I imagine this question might have already been asked, but I, I have a follow up in case it has. So you talked about some of the problems that the uh, you know foreign fighters are facing in terms of task organization. Would just having it by country of origin make it easier, or would it kind of create divisions that might be unnecessary, like an American Legion, like a British Legion, and so on and so forth? Um, well, I don't know if it'd make it any better. At the end of the day, having a joint task force or a joint units would be better, where it's like 50% Ukrainians, 50% whatever foreigners. Um, and the reason being is... A lot of the Westerners, especially from like America, Canada, Britain, they get pissed off because they don't know what's going on. Um, but the reason they don't know what's going on is because they don't want to sit in the ops room. They don't want to shadow the officer that's doing the logistics. The, um, you know, a lot of these units actually don't get to plan their operations. Um, we're our unit, and there's a few others <clears throat> with Westerners that are a little bit unique that we get a lot of leeway in what we do because of the people we have in our units. Um, but I think more of a joint unit would be a lot better. I don't know if a lot of Westerners would like that. They try to be this autonomous Wild West type stuff, and that usually ends up blowing up their face, at least for the, like, American-type people. Um, but I think they need, need to restructure the Legion from the top down <clears throat> and how they operate and how they're getting recruits and how they're they're just managing it. Um, and, I mean, it's, it's a big undertaking. I don't think the people currently employed there as volunteers from the west can do it um a lot of the guys that started in the legion as management aren't military and it shows drastically um so that's a big issue um <clears throat> there's issues on the ukrainian side too some of those officers that they have employed i'm praying get shit for this but they're worthless um like completely worthless <clears throat> there are good officers too uh, a lot of times for a lot of things, uh, even when I'm trying to work out issues. But I think having more of a structured command, too, like the Ukrainians aren't requiring structure for these units. Uh, so we know who the Ukrainian officer is, but then they don't have a, you know, a team leader, a squad leader. They have somebody they might listen to at this point, but then next week they might not listen to them. And that's really harming a lot of these units, and that gets a lot of people angry. And then the Ukrainians get angry. Um, so having a little bit more of a rigid command for the volunteer units would probably be the biggest benefit. Um, also ensuring that people who don't have a combat job skill, like an MOS, if they're not like 11 Bravo, 18 series, or, you know, if they're, if they're an 88 November transportation logistics or something that's not even close to combat, they shouldn't be on the front lines. They should be working in the back end with the administration, figuring out the logistics problems, the admin problems, and all that. You know, it's just there's a there's a lot of obstacles that they're not fixing, and it's just fucking a lot of these units up. Uh, luckily, it's not getting people killed yet, but they could be doing things a lot more efficiently and help out the battle and the fighting a lot more. They just aren't doing it, so I don't know. <clears throat> no, and so that kind of leads me to, to my next question, which is, you know, as this. Unlike maybe Iraq, Syria, and Afghanistan, you know, which may seem like forever wars for the times they, they were happening, you know, this one seems to have a very clear-cut and, and finite end, right? The, 
the recapture of all Ukrainian territory. As this happens, of course, you know, more Ukrainians are going to be required to fight. The formations will get bigger. Do you, do you see the International Legion getting bigger, getting smaller, playing a different role in, in these sort of offenses? I, I know that's a little bit uh, ways ahead, but I'm just curious, you know, if this thing goes on, how you think the Legion will change over time? Um, <clears throat> I hope the Legion itself implodes and the Westerners either go into the Army, GUR, SBU, TDF, because um, <clears throat> as it stands right now, because they had to create the Legion so quick and fill it with the Ukrainian officers so fast, it, the, they just need to get everyone out of the Legion and have them enlisted straight into the Army, the Marines, like under one of the actual branches versus this, this uh, whatever they got going on, because it's not working. I mean, it is, but it's not. Uh, the people that are still hanging on, <clears throat> or that are still here, I shouldn't say hanging on, the people that are still here, um, are predominantly not happy with the Legion, so they try to avoid the Legion of, like the plague. Um, but I think they should just roll all the foreigners into either the Army, the Marines, or you know, the ones with experience, the ones that have the special skill sets, they can go into like the SSO division of the Army, or they can go to the Marines. <clears throat> the people with no experience, like in actual combat, put them in the TDF, put them as trainers. Um, and then they can use some of the more experienced guys, like the older guys that don't want to fight, but like came over here and said, hey, I can do like operations control or tactics training, put them as trainers too. But yeah, I hope the Legion just disappears and they roll everyone over into the actual forces. It'll solve a lot of problems because you already have a thanks command structure there. Ryan, thanks for saying this. This is so high time that it has to be set from someone on location. You I say to my commanders all the time. Mate, you have to tweet it out all the time as an integrate them integrate them integrate them because that's what it is they are great people coming from all over the world they just need to be part of the whole force and then you can sort out the, uh, the issues exactly right even the french in the american revolution were integrated into the american troops they had issues some of the cannoneers supposedly <clears throat> created a bit of friendly fire even, but at, at some point in time, they managed to integrate. It did work. It happened. Well, I mean, if they're going to continue doing the Legion long-term, like there, there's talks of um, <clears throat> doing this like as a permanent thing. They really need to sit down with their French counterparts and learn specifically how the French Foreign Legion got built and go off of that. <clears throat> they also need to get harder on the foreigners that are consistently fucking up, if it includes throwing them in jail, put them in a cupcake jail where it's a jail, but it's not a jail, just to, you know, make an example and then boot them out of the country, just do it. I mean, they got to do something because it's not, they've lost a lot of experience because the mismanagement, not getting killed, but just leaving the country because they got tired of it. Of course, 100%. Alex Caftelli. Thank you. You spoke about... Um different uh, nations fighting on Ukrainian side. What about the other side? Uh, are they all Russians to you, or you can tell the difference in terms of, I don't know, moral commitment, um, level of uh, skills, weapon? Uh, um, there are what? There are LNR DNR, there are Buryats, there are Dagestanis, there are Kadyrov Chechens, uh, there is Wagner. Um, yeah, sometimes you, you may think this is like mixed bag of uh, all kind of troops that, uh, that are even not coherent. But uh, what's your impression? 
Yes, I mean, there's obviously Wagner over here. I think Wagner's actually predominantly, <clears throat> currently predominantly Russians. I don't know if they have Syrians or not yet uh, with them. I don't know how they're doing their recruitment. Um, our boys faced off against them um, recently, and that went decent. Um, overall picture, obviously, Severo got taken, so we didn't do the best, but we weren't going to be able to hold that anyway. Um, <clears throat> we were told, I, we, we were never able to verify it, but apparently there were Belarusians fighting for the Russians at the start of the war over near Irpin and Bucha in those areas. Um, we got briefed on it by the Ukrainians, but I don't think we never saw them. Uh, they were wearing a different uniform pattern and some other stuff. But like I said, we never killed any of them, so we don't have any proof of it. Um, that might have just been a rumor. Who knows? Um, outside of that, outside of the, and the, I mean, there's Chechens too. We've seen some Chechens. Um, we've killed a few of them. And, but otherwise, outside of the Chechens and Russians, we haven't really seen, I haven't, and I don't think anyone else in my unit has, um, you know, we haven't seen anyone from Africa. Like they said, there's people signing up for, uh, we have yet to see Syrians that we've noted. Um, so I, I think it's predominantly still mainly Russians and Chechens. There might be some Belarusian volunteers in there. I don't think there was ever really a Belarusian unit that was fighting for the Russians, but um, it's predominantly for them right now. No, but th- I mean there might be somewhere in the con- fighting in the country, but I don't. I don't get to see anyone other than like Belarusian or uh, Chechens and Russians. So, thank you. Okay. All right. Uh, CJ, go ahead. You know, early on in the war, we heard some uh, calls for the American government to, you know, allow American fighter pilots to be trained on other sort of aircraft and help the war. And we've heard sort of a bunch of kind of uh, far out there uh, solutions to get more Americans in the fight. From from your point of view, what more could the U.S. be doing to help Ukraine uh, outside of, you know, weapons deliveries, which we talk about 24-7? What would you like to see? That, you know, within reason, of course, considering, you know, how tense the situation is where they could really be making a difference and just aren't right now. Um, <clears throat> I would love to say, like, pull a Putin and do little green men. Uh, that's not really uh, realistic, but um, I don't know if there's really much else they can do other than, you know, finance and, um, you know, just equipment in general. I don't know if there's a way that they could swing um, maybe some like we're decommissioning quite a few ships in the next five years i don't know if there's a way we could just decommission them extremely soon and then hand them over to the ukrainian navy somewhere out in the sea i don't know how that works um but i I don't think there's really anything the americans can't can do more right now outside of the aid packages that wouldn't Mm -hmm. potentially escalate things to a level that nobody wants to see um, they might be able to intervene with the Belarusian side stuff a little bit if they actually get involved, but I don't, I don't know how much they could without, again, creating a larger, more broader conflict. So I, I don't think realistically there's anything they can do outside of, um, <clears throat> you know, giving military aid and, you know, weapons aid, unless you, the only other option, which definitely probably wouldn't happen, would just allow open recruitment in the u.s which i I don't know if that violate a law or not but um yeah there's not much they can really do their hands are sort of tied unless they want to call putin's bluff on the nukes and everything else so you you did mention uh one thing actually which uh, we've heard discussed in the space a bit and is sort of gaining traction and that's you know little green men but in this case uh, potentially contracting out either private military company or, or more specifically a private logistics company to help facilitate, you know, weapons and ammo. And so, you know, they're all 
DOD civilians and contractors, but it would uh, greatly help with the transportation issues they're having at the border. Do you see this as a feasible policy or something that would make a difference in uh, helping expedite the transfer of weapons and aid? Um, possibly at the border. I'm I'm going to assume there's already people from Western nations helping facilitate the logistics, probably inside and outside the country, and maybe some non-official rules, but official rules. Um, as far as the contracting goes, the problem you're going to run into is uh, any of these people who are going to contract are going to want a lot of money per day, and that might not that might not produce the results you're looking for, like that that people expect in the long term. As far as like if we contract them for more than just the logistics side of things, you know, like combat wise, um, I don't know if that would be. I don't. I don't know if that would work out well. It might just turn into another Blackwater type situation. That wouldn't be good either. Um, so I mean, maybe for the logistics side of things and getting their logistics networks better um, could probably be beneficial. Uh, definitely on the rebuilding side of things, but that's going to have to be after the war, or I guess they could start doing it now in certain areas. But yeah, I, I don't think there's anything they can do like in a combat sense that would be functional from a financial standpoint, uh, especially when that financial money could just go to purchasing more weapons. Um, you know, so I, I don't, I don't know. Their, their hands are really tied unless Biden really wants to see what Putin will do if we get more actively involved, um, whether that's throw a bunch of ships near the Black Sea entrance to escort or demine the Black Sea for Ukraine to get grain out or I you know I, I there there's I don't I don't know what else he can really do that won't escalate it to a certain point uh with or even to where he's comfortable calling the bluff like oh I'll use nukes well you know it's either prove it and then if he proves it well that sucks you know I mean like there's there's it's a huge tiptoe right now because you don't know what he's all willing to do and uh so yeah I don't I don't think outside the money and weapons he can they can do much Axel did you hear that no it's uh very interesting you say that Ryan because you know obviously here in the space we've been advocates for aid to Ukraine to help them you know defend themselves but you know there's been a lot of complaints from people who I don't think really understand you know, just kind of the the funnel that's created by this massive front, you know, with getting aid, that in fact, so much is being done, even if more could be done, you know, it is like a monumental effort to get weapons and, and, and ammo moving forward. So it's good to hear that it, it might be making a difference. Yeah, and I mean, they could probably put more people on ground. Like I said, there's Western nations that obviously have people in the country who are experts on certain stuff doing stuff. Um, again, though, it's at a certain point, you reach that tipping point where Russia says, oh, you're now actively involved uh, with actual boots on the ground which is going to either you know at some point you either call his bluff or you don't and if you call his bluff and he's not bluffing then we're in a whole new ball game that nobody wants to get to um yeah but I'm... we don't have to we don't have to get into that ball game we just have to take the um i'm sorry as our friend ben hodges says atakams southerner that he is or atakams we have to take out each and every logistical supply route the Russians have into country. We have to take out every single supply side base they have on their own soil. If it's a military aim, it's a military aim. So what? Take it out, bomb it to uh, smithereens. Take out every rail yard, every uh, rear echelon or third echelon maintenance depot, and that's that. And as you said, in, I think in the very first hour of the discussion here, that the Ukrainians are cheering whenever one of those supply depots um, goes up in flames. Let's just do that. Let's give Ukraine 
what it is actually what it is deserving of that is significant rocket artillery because they won't be having f-15s and f-16s and f-18s right on time they won't be able to execute this let's give them ma1 abrams because we can we are the west we can and nobody should talk about the fucking supply train sorry the technical term the dreaded supply train it's absolutely possible if we want it we can ship it the us has 2400 of the dang things sitting around in mothball because if the europeans don't want it we just simply force their hand this is a matter of power policy and people like ryan who've been fighting every single day need to be supported ryan you didn't hear this because you were obviously uh, reconnecting i was just holding a speech uh, supporting the fact that you need more ammunition gun support you need more uh, rocket artillery and the likes all of it i would say we could use some better anti-ship missiles i think norway makes a pretty decent one um and then what france has the exoset or whatever i'm not a naval guy but i know norway makes a pretty decent anti-ship um so getting some of those in that can maybe hit the black sea fleet would be good but again that's probably doable but like the other stuff where people are saying why don't we just do this this and this like if the ukrainians aren't doing it the, the ukrainians have to do it if it's from western supplied weapons then so be it like i don't think like i said earlier in the conversation there should never be a range limitation on what weapons we give them give them everything, of course not give them everything short of nukes that they can use or can be trained on um that's about where i'm at with it i'm with you mate i'm with you mate everything short of nukes completely correct it, there is by the way this uh geofencing and all these kind of silly ideas this narrative which has been portrayed in western media this tiptoeing around the topic there is an enemy we have a chance of Ukraine fighting for its freedom and getting rid of the enemy. We should be gloriously helping them, CJ. In terms of help, you know, one initiative that the Department of Defense talked about today was this idea of being able to virtually train on some of these sort of heavier pieces of equipment. I, you know, I, I was stationed in Germany previously and my comrades in the artillery were <laughs> very heavily involved with training Ukrainians in artillery. And, you know, they've received calls from them and, and tried to help them out the best they can over the phone. but. I guess my question for you is, you know, this is sort of a post-COVID era of everything being virtual. Do you see, you know, the U.S. providing more, you know, IT support, you know, management support, maintenance support, even if it is virtual being, you know, helpful at all? I, I know you don't necessarily deal with those heavier pieces of kit that the Ukrainians are having to operate, but I just want to know your thoughts on that, if, if you thought that could be helpful at all, or what other sort of training aid could be given to kind of help the Ukrainians along. I mean, I think in certain things it would. Um, trying to, I don't know if you could really. It'd be interesting to see the results. I don't want to say I don't think it'll work for like artillery or HIMARS to train virtually on. I think it'd be really hard, um, especially when like even <clears throat> even with translators, you still have a you know a transliteration issue sometimes. So it's a lot easier just to show people. Uh, one thing they could do that they probably won't do. Uh, there's plenty of Western volunteers over here who used to be MOSQ'd or used to have a skill qualifier for a lot of these systems. Um, if they, a lot of the older systems, maybe not the newer ones, you know. Um, I don't see why they couldn't just take one of these volunteers, since he's technically a Ukrainian enlisted soldier now, um, and train them and have them come back over and just do nothing but train 24-7. Because, uh, you know, these are our platforms that we used in Iraq, Afghanistan. Um, so running a refresher for a 
technically a Ukrainian, uh, whether they're born here or not after they're enlisted is whatever. Um, so I don't know why they don't just use the Western volunteers to do it. Um, that might, they'd have to work out a system to where that person stays in country and does it. But, um, <clears throat> I mean, technically, you know, I could go get, I already know how to fly them, but I could go get training on switchblades and I'm enlisted in the Ukrainian military. So I'm a Ukrainian military member. So that shouldn't be an issue for any side other than Russia, but everything's an issue for them. So. No, that's a very interesting point. You know, I hadn't thought of that. You know, I'd heard that basically the, the training programs that were given were, you know, in some cases, you know, a train, the trainer type situation, right? Where, you know, for the audience, they, they don't only, they don't only teach you how to use it. They teach you how to train other people how to use it. And then the ones that aren't being used in the front are being trained by uh, Ukrainians. But, you know, that's a great point. There's probably, you know, thir thir fellow 13 Bravos and fellow, you know, especially drone operators, like you just mentioned, you know, some skills that Westerners have and could help with the, on the front with this equipment, because although some of the stuff is cutting edge, you pointed out, yeah, like a lot of the stuff we've used for 20 years and in the case of Javelins, you know, 40 years, et cetera, et cetera. So probably uh, a good program to start if they're not already doing it somewhere. Yeah. Yep. Correct. And like, <clears throat> again, like even with these newer systems, you know, if you've got, if you're a U.S. military doing artillery for 15 years, then you got out, and now you're in Ukraine. Like you're you're better positioned as a training advisor. And like, if I was Ukraine, I'd be pressuring the U.S. government to train my new Ukrainian E1, who may not be a born Ukrainian, but is now in the Ukrainian service on these weapons, so that they can train the other guys a lot more thorough and a lot quicker. Um, like doing the train, the trainer works, but if you train somebody who has 15 years on an older system, on an updated system, they're going to know a lot more of the ins and outs on the actual employment of it than getting a new person to do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think, you know, that would just, if you follow that down the rabbit hole a bit more, it would make sense for, you know, if, if people like you and, and sort of, you know, foreign born soldiers in the Ukrainian army now, you know, wanted to keep fighting, but they also maybe needed a break just for a bit, you know, sending them along with the other Ukrainians to these training areas to get that kind of training so they can be, you know, even more of an asset when they go back to the front. That, that seems like that might be a good idea. Thank you. Yeah, here, uh, a request to our audience, please do share and retweet the space. It's a blue button on the bottom right was a plus sign. And when you do it, please, uh, please tag our guest, Ryan. Ryan O'Leary, and uh, again, please share and retweet the space. It's actually important and helps us. And please do give Ryan a follow. Back to you, Ryan. All right. So we have more questions for you, Ryan, if you're still up for it. We have Joseph and then Alex Cartelli, and I have a number of questions in my DMs for you. Yep. I'll probably have to head out here in like 30 minutes or so, but yeah, I'm good. Cool. Mate, where go? Joseph, hey. shoot. <laughs> hey, thanks, Ryan. Um... Again, thanks so much for your time. Uh, so uh, I guess I was curious, you know, we, we had a, as a guest once uh, Operator Starsky on here, and he once mentioned that, you know, the Russian military is really kind of following their book, like their guidelines about what to do in terms of their, where they dig the trenches, where they set up the command posts. So I was wondering if, like, in your experience that was true. Is, is there certain things in terms of, um, like, Russian military doctrine at the tactical level that are sort of predictable because of the way they follow their book? I mean, I understand they're not robots, but uh, have you had any observations about that? Uh, Starsky's Ukrainian, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so <clears throat> uh, 
Uh, this was brought up a little bit earlier. Um, I actually don't know any Russian doctrine. Um, there's some stuff that you learn that they do while you're fighting them, but as far as like if they're following what the manuals say, I really don't know. Um, I've I guess never more like it, are they predictable? Like, if you, yeah, yeah, yeah. To a certain extent, to a certain extent, they are. Um, you can definitely tell. There's definitely patterns that they follow. Um, he probably. I think he sees a lot more of an overall picture because he does, I think he does a lot with artillery and some other stuff too. I don't think he actually fires it, but I think he's in contact with them a lot and all that stuff. Um, as far as what we do, it's pretty, it, you can, you can figure out what they're doing after you just observe them for a little bit, especially with how they maneuver their tanks. Um, it takes a little bit to learn what they're doing, but once you learn what they do, they don't they don't really change up their routines. So maybe that's the best way to put it. Thanks. So we'll go to Alex Caftelli and then we'll have questions from DMs. Yeah, I really like this this idea to find out the way to scale up this train the trainer thing and uh, and logistics thing because um, we had uh, General Hodges, I think that was yesterday, and he mentioned that like logistics side. It was not really prepared. I mean, they are figuring it out as it, as it grows, and probably now that France and Germany are kind of more committed in this, that may help. Or hopefully, they are. Um, but if there is a way to mean, uh, you know, to because essentially we will be able to attract more people from uh, with experience of this uh, system to train the Ukrainians so that this uh, knowledge really is ingrained. Because there are a couple of um, reports, not really reports, it was rather, you know, articles where, you know, somebody who knew how to operate the stuff uh, moved, and then um, the guy did not know how to read, uh, like, something very simple on the inscription, and he had to call, you know, the the instructor uh, somewhere else in a different country. So, like, that whole train-the-trainer thing is uh, is important, and uh, I really like the idea because you, you can really scale up, like, not everybody. There could be, like, 10 reasons why somebody is not suited for, you know, combat, per se, but if he knows, like, technical side of the things, he can still be useful um, in terms of transferring the knowledge of how to operate this machine. Thanks. It was not really a question, but um, I did like your idea. Um, maybe we can also, you know, talk a little bit more about it. Yeah, I mean, there's the logistics is horrendous. Um, and there, there's ways around it. Um, actually, we were speaking about this earlier with some people, and, like, one of the recommendations that was brought up was maybe using, um, like, I believe it was, uh, they brought up Palantir. Palantir apparently has a supply chain logistics management software, part of their software, whatever um, system. Um, but I, yeah, the, the logistics is probably the hardest. The best way to update the and do the train, the like train the trainer type deal, is if the international legion leadership got off their asses um organize their ship better and actually put actually utilize the people of experience that shouldn't be on the front line fighting into trainer and advisory roles um 
I don't know how you can make that happen. Uh, it's probably what should happen since there's a lot of experience here and expertise here in country already. And there's always people coming in. Um, so, I mean, it, it, they just need a bottom up change on how they run the international legion. I personally think everyone should just get rolled over into one of the other things and get rid of it. But, um, there's definitely ways around it to make the train, the trainer better, or even just training like the TDF guys that are now going to the front, but the Ukrainian military leadership, like the Ministry of defense needs to really get on the international legion to fix their problems. All right, thank you. You mentioned switchblades, if I may use this opportunity. So, uh, like, are they being used? Uh, are there any barriers to use them? Is it because of lack of knowledge or there is, like, GPS jamming that, like, what, what's the story with them? Um, so the issue with the switchblades is this. They're, they're, you can train someone on them, but actually using them in a combat situation, it's not, it's, it's not a simple... It's a simple concept until you execute it. Um, you can fly a switchblade into a window of a building, though. Um, they are good. Um, but there's certain scenarios where you want to use them. There's certain scenarios where you don't. And then, like I said, executing, a, like using a switchblade and having it execute like it should is a whole different system. Um, I th and they are being used. They are being used really good. But they aren't with every unit. They're only going to the specialized units. Um, and that's predominantly because I, th I I'm not, I'm not sure why they're only giving them out to certain units, but, um, they, they, there's a lot of speculation that they're not being used effectively. They're definitely effective. Um, even against BMPs, BTRs, they are effective depending on where they're hit at. Um, the biggest issue is they're, they're situational based too, because you have to, you don't, you don't want to use a switchblade on one guy. Uh, we don't have 600s. We have the 300s. So um, you want to be able to know where a group of people are or at least have intel on where they're possibly at. Um, and then you launch it, you find them, you smack them. But they're not being employed a lot just because, like I said, they're situational. You don't want to hit one or two guys with them. You want to take out, um, find out what building they're in, put it through the window, uh, find out if they're organizing for attack and hit them where they're organizing at. So, I mean, there's a lot more to it than just, shooting it out of the tube and flying it around till you find a target um doing that also alerts the russians to where you're at too so um not really on the ground where you launched it from but just that you have a drone up and then everyone goes back inside so they're they're situational they're good but they're situational that's why you're seeing a lot more of these uh commercial drones being used because they can drop a 40 mic mic or an anti-tank grenade on a tank blow it up they can drop a 40 millimeter or the VOG 17s on two guys and they're out $40 worth of, you know, munitions. Um, the switch, the switchies are, the switchblades are a little bit more of a specialized thing. So that's why you're not, you're not going to get a lot of video out of it either because the video is uh, not directly there and saying, but it's not being published. So uh, there's some that came out just to say, Hey, we're using them. But um, I don't think you're going to see a lot of it coming out. What do you expect in 